All right. So hang on until I get the red light to call it. Yes, right. exactly. That's You'll right. see some balloons and some confetti fly on the screen and stuff like that. Okay, great. Not a joke. You really will. Uh, <laughs> okay. This is Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon, bringing to you the best in news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. And I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman. The barrel, it's a magical component to the creation of bourbon. And nearly 95% of all bourbon goes into white oak. But what's the problem with this? Bourbon can only be used in a charred barrel once. After that, it has to find a new home. Now, that may sound wasteful, but the bourbon market is only a very small contributor to the white oak problem. And to help us better understand about forestry and the white oak supply, I've invited Dana Baxley from the Nature Conservancy of Kentucky to join the show. She gives some great insight into the current state of white oak trees and what is currently being done to protect our forests. I've never known what it takes to manage a forest, and this episode will give you an insight into grading and how invasive species of trees continue to decline the white oak population. But more so, Dana gives us some more insight if we will ever experience a white oak shortage in the future and what we can do to help protect it. With that, enjoy this week's episode. And now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This week's idea comes from Brian Vaughn, who hits me up on Patreon. Is Heaven Hill really running out of old bourbon? The next batch of Elijah Craig Barrel Proof is under 10 years old, and I'm seeing people say we will never see a 13-year-old barrel from them again. Is it just lower stocks of old bourbon, or are they adding younger bourbon to help meet demand? Brian, that's a great question, and I will be honest with you. I have not sat down with Heaven Hill to review this with them, but I know their stock situation. I do know there's a lot of demand on them. I also know that they want to explore more like Elijah Craig, 18-year-old, and some of the more super premium 20, 21, 22, 23-year-olds that they've done in the past with like Evan Williams. They also would like to look at their Parker Heritage Series a little bit more with age. So I wouldn't say they're not running low. Let's be very candid here about that. They are not running low on older whiskey in comparison to where they were, say, five years ago, because they've been laying down a lot more stock. So they should have more whiskey come up with age. I do think that they are playing around a little bit with Elijah Craig Barrel Proof to loosen up some of those barrels. Now, Elijah Craig Barrel Proof, they're going to be doing that based on taste. They're not going, they're going to do it on profile. And the fact is, older doesn't always mean better. And the real sweet spot for bourbon is usually 8 to 12 years old. The quality of Elijah Craig Barrel Proof is not going to go anywhere. I mean, all you have to do is look at the annual Whiskey of the Year list and see how many times Elijah Craig Barrel Proof is on critical lists such as mine or someone else's out there. So I I don't think we're going to see any impact on the quality of that. But I do think a lot of that age stock is going into their other brands. And again, I did not approach Heaven Hill with this. This is just my own theory and just knowing that company and the industry with some of their future strategies. But that's going to do it for this week's Above the Char. If you want to hit me up like Brian Vaughn, make sure you go to fredminnick.com, click the contact button, And if I like the idea, I'll read it on the air. Till next week, cheers. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof, And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. 
Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits, and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. And they're off for another Get 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at give270.org. Charitable gaming license ORG 0002703. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. Kenny and Ryan here today with a brand new angle we have never covered on the show, which is talking about forest restoration and white oak and everything that you would kind of not think about of what goes into the process of bourbon because it's all in the back end. Uh, As a consumer, you don't really see or thinking about this because you have a bottle in your hand, you drink it. And you're like, oh, I should recycle this glass. But you don't think about everything that is building up to that point. And I don't know, Ryan, I mean, this is going to be something that I think is going to be, like I said, it's a new angle as we start looking at conservation and everything else like that, that goes into protecting all the raw materials that go into producing this product. Yeah, I'm surprised it's taken us this long to do this topic. It's a fascinating one because, yeah, you go into a rickhouse and you see you know, you just go to one rickhouse and it has 20,000 barrels in there. And there's, I don't know how many now in Kentucky, there's over 10 million barrels or eight to 10 million barrels or something. I think the last thing I saw was we're at two and a half barrels per person in Kentucky, but I'm sure we're going to be approaching three very, very soon. Yeah. And that's just Kentucky. And so there's distilleries growing all over the world, bourbon production, which requires that new charred oak barrel. So while that provides an amazing product, it's also has consequences or things we need to think about as an industry as a whole is like, how can we make this, you know, a win-win for the consumers and bourbons and the environment as well. So, uh, you know, I love nature and I know Kenny just loves nature. So I know he's thrilled that when the foil nature person and you see all the leaves change color, that's, I know that's, that's where you, that's where you really shine. Yeah. I I, I drive and I say, Kenny, look at those trees. And he's like, don't care. (laughs) (laughs) This is a really fascinating topic to me because we want to protect Kentucky's, you know, that's what people say when they come here. They love seeing Kentucky, the rolling hills, the knobs and the forest and this and that. And so, and not just Kentucky, Missouri is a big producer in Tennessee, West Virginia. So yeah, this will be a fascinating conversation. I'm rambling too much. So let's get the expert. Let's do it. So today on the show, we have Dana Baxley. She is the director of conservation for the nature conservation in Kentucky. So Dana, welcome to the show. Hey, Kenny. Hey, Ryan. It's great to be here. Love the pod. Yeah, thanks for coming. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So before we dive into it, kind of give folks a little bit of background about sort of your path and your career and what got you to this particular position. Absolutely. So I am one of those people that from a very young age always knew that I wanted to have a job outside. I loved nature I mean, in my downtime, I'm backpacking, biking, skiing, I mean, anything outdoors. So I've always just loved our public lands, loved being outside. You know, I took an academic path and studied conservation biology. And then I had a variety of jobs with the state government, federal government, worked for Kentucky Fish and Wildlife for 10 years. I came upon a job with the Nature Conservancy, which is the job I have now. We're a nonprofit organization that a lot of people don't know a lot about the Nature Conservancy in Kentucky because we're a pretty small organization here, but we are the largest conservation organization in the world. We're in all 50 states and over 70 countries, and we've gotten as big as we've gotten because we are non-confrontational, solutions-oriented, science-based. We do what we call build a big tent. So we like to work across both sides of the aisle to solve complex problems. So I've worked with the Nature Conservancy for about seven years now. I love it. It's it's a fantastic place to be. Were there dreams and aspirations of growing up to be a forest ranger? 
You just nailed it. So was it really only, the only job that I knew existed was forest ranger. I mean, my parents are wonderful, but I thought my options were business, teacher, forest ranger. So, <laughs> so the more I learned about the field of conservation, which has grown tremendously over the past 20 years, the more I realized there are various options besides just forest ranger. You do get an awesome hat. You do, although I will say I think that their uniforms are lodged in the 70s and 80s. Every, you know, I'm like, come on, we can upgrade those uniforms. (laughs) So, did you go to 4-H camp, like conservation? No, no, no one in my family was into the outdoors, so I I didn't really get that exposure. When I graduated college, I actually threw hike the Appalachian Trail and started to get a lot of field jobs and conservation. So that's where my my real experience started. I'm jealous. It's like a bucket list. Trip of mine. I've done like sections of the Appalachian Trail up in Vermont, Tennessee, and Georgia, but haven't done it all. So I'm super jealous. Yeah. Well, talk about the forests that are home to to the white oak. I mean, tremendously important forests for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that you just mentioned is that the way that you all have been so successful is because you're a non-confrontational approach. I'm kind of curious about that because the, it seems like the ones that end up making noise or you have all these kind of scare tactic videos of ducks getting caught on six pack things and stuff like that. And people are like, go save the turtles. And it, so it's like, how how are you all able to kind of achieve your mission without having to revert to that to say, like, we've got to get the general public to be scared to get along on our side with here? Yeah, that's a great question. So our approach It doesn't center fear tactics. What we center is communities and people. We believe that conservation solutions and community economic solutions can go hand in hand. And the most successful conservation initiatives are often those that also are of value to people and communities. So we're not a nature versus people. We're a nature and people organization. And once people learn that about us, it really opens the doors of communications I mean, there's always compromises that can be made in terms of really delivering high quality public land or conservation management, but not detracting from our important communities either. So that's that's sort of our, our approach. I like that. You don't like shame us into action. That's what sometimes they, there's some environmental groups just make me feel like a terrible person where we shouldn't even belong here. And I'm like, well, maybe we don't. I don't know. Yeah. We also have a pretty significant policy and government relations arm where we truly are seeking policies that both sides of the aisle can get behind, like the Land and Water Conservation Fund to provide more public land for everyone. So those are the types of initiatives we're involved with. Yeah, I was about to say, kind of talk about the greater initiatives that you are involved with before we kind of dive into White Oak and Forest and stuff like that, too. Sure. So there's the Nature Conservancy writ large, and then there's our work in Kentucky. So I'll just focus on our work in Kentucky just because that's what I'm so passionate about and what I lead. So we have the largest river restoration project in Kentucky ongoing right now down on the Green River. 200 miles of free-flowing river is our goal. We're working with local partners to remove three locks and dams. We've got two and a half of those removed. So we're working really closely with, you know, the Army Corps of Engineers and local interests as well. In the eastern part of the state, we'll talk about our forest management. So I'll gloss over that for this section. But the Appalachian Mountains are just globally significant. I mean, if you look at all of the areas in the, on the whole planet, the Nature Conservancy, not just in Kentucky, but the overall organization has identified four places that we feel have the highest ability to contribute to biodiversity. So protecting all the plants and animals and habitats that we love and then tackling climate change. And the four focal areas are Borneo, the Amazon, an area in Africa, in Kenya, and then the Appalachians. So our vision is to build a protected corridor from the Blue Ridge Mountains all the way up to Maine to protect this super important forested corridor for animal migrations and public recreation. Some of the biggest gaps in that protected network are right here in Kentucky and in West Virginia. So you think about the Smokies and George Washington Jefferson National Forest. There's all these protected lands But the Cumberland Pine Mountain Corridor, for example, has very little protection between those two ranges. So we're really focused on protection and then 
We don't just want to protect these forests. We want to manage them, which is where some of the white oak conversation will come in. But we also have an extensive prescribed fire program um, focused on our eastern forests. And then we have a director of floodplain and wetlands conservation who is working on the Mississippi River. Really cool program where um, farmers who have frequently flooded agricultural lands, they voluntarily partner with the federal government to take their lands out of production for a payment. And then the Nature Conservancy partners with them to plant trees, restore the hydrology, connect the river back to the floodplain, that kind of thing. And we also have an agricultural program where we have partnered with the bourbon industry, trying to help as thought partners contribute to how to green the supply chain and how to be more sustainable. Well, I had a question about the Appalachian. That's fascinating to me that you said it's one of the top four. It seems like the Appalachians get like four true seasons versus other mountain ranges, I guess. Is that why, like help, why are the Appalachians so important, I guess? During the last Pleistocene, when everything was covered in ice, there was actually an ice-free corridor that went down through the Appalachians. So all of the plants and animals constricted their ranges into the small area in the Appalachians. And then as the, the ice melted, everything expanded out of there. Which is why if you go down to the Smokies, you can find some populations at really high elevations that the only other place they exist is in Canada. So there was this ice-free corridor, and it really allowed for a a refugia for all kinds of plants and animals during the last Pleistocene. Globally, nowhere else in the world has more salamander diversity than the Appalachians. It's just a very rich system. I thought the Smokies were just for all the cast iron skillet factories. You, <laughs> you can get those too. You can get those too. <laughs> um, but one other thing I'll mention about the Appalachians is that because east of the Mississippi River, we have we don't have this high percentage of public lands. Like you go out to Utah or Idaho and you have half public lands or whatever. Kentucky is less than 5% public lands. So with all the development the natural habitat and large forest blocks are sort of constrained to those mountains that are hard to develop. So because of all the development, you have this corridor where wildlife is sort of constrained into, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense because out west, it's so vast. You can see like Vermont is Kentucky. So you say it's 5% protected. What's how much is agriculture percentage? You know, of I don't. I don't actually know that. I would just assume it was pr- uh, quite a bit. Yeah, lot, especially um, west of, like, in the Jackson Purchase area, but in the bluegrass region and eastern Kentucky, it's mainly it's not row crop agriculture. It's mainly haying and pasture and things like that. One of the things that you had mentioned earlier is, and I, I it, forgive me for not knowing any of this, is that you talk about protection. What does protection like really mean? What are those forms that you're doing to, I guess protect everything that you're doing. Yeah. So when we talk about protection at the Nature Conservancy, it's a pretty big bucket. Um, Oftentimes, I'll give you an example. So one of our largest projects right now that we're working on is a 55,000 acre public recreation easement that we are working with Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife on. So we... um, When we say protection, we mean we want to keep the habitat in a natural condition, so keep it forested. And we're not an organization that tries to lock up areas that we purchase or protect. We're very interested in increasing public access. So protection is a term that basically means making sure that natural habitat is in place and stays managed appropriately. We welcome the public and other access onto these areas. Gotcha. I just didn't know if people were sitting there with rifles outside, just like (laughs) going back and forth between fence lines or something like that. No, no. And in fact, you know, we support public hunting access and all user groups are welcome on um, in our conversations. I'm I'm sure that's challenging, too, because Kentucky has such a always tell people that we're, we're great at growing many things, bad at growing one thing here because of all the diverse climate and huge temperature swings and you know, heavy thunderstorms, droughts. It's like we have it all here. And But with that, it seems like it's very conducive for like invasive species to get here. So that's got to be a challenge, like trying to like, I guess, keep the natural habitat in, even when you try to do that, I guess. Yeah, invasive species are a tremendous problem. And I think a lot of that has to do with our temperate climate, just how it's it's warm here. And, and we've just 
you know, there's so many invasive species that we deal with that it's part of the conversation of not only do we need to make sure that the land doesn't get developed or transition to another use, we also want to make sure that, you know, those natural habitats like your oak, hickory, forest, that those are safeguarded. Yeah. And the reason I bring that up, Kenny, is because what's great about bourbon in Kentucky or Kentucky so great about for bourbon is those huge temperature swings for the whiskey moving in and out of the oak, but it makes it a challenge for other things, I guess. For growing absolutely anything else. Exactly. Right. Right. (laughs) (sighs) I think it's crazy. I was doing a little bit of kind of background reading about the bourbon laws and you two probably know this, but so in 1964, like the federal government said you can only use white oak barrels once to make bourbon. Um, I actually didn't know that that was in the federal register. That's really interesting. Yeah, and that's kind of been one of the, I wouldn't say a pinnacle, but it's been a pillar of something that we've been trying to talk about is trying to figure out going forward, how do we become a better society that we can reuse these barrels in a better way? Because that is definitely one of those things. And not only that is like bourbon can touch it for maybe a half second and then it can go be bottled and it's still considered bourbon or white dog into that. And then it's considered bourbon and that barrel can no longer be used for bourbon ever again. So it's a very wasteful process. It would be good to kind of have the industry start backing it and figuring out what they can do to be better stewards of making sure that it isn't just as wasteful as it currently is. You all probably know more about this than I do, but my understanding is that a lot of those bourbon barrels after being used once, don't they go to make, you know, bourbon barrel ale and hot sauce and other spirits? Or I wonder how Mm -hmm. many of them are recycled into other products. Uh, I'd say, oh, 100%. 100% are. Yeah. 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 Because they're so expensive up front. And that's, and two, they're, 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 and I'm sure we'll get into more. There's a, it seems like they've gotten better where there's no wasted product of the white oak species. They've taken what the, they can't make into staves and they make it into like animal mulch or landscape products or even oak alternatives. And so that, and then the barrels get reused. So they they definitely get a longevity with that initial, but it is, I'm sure a cooperage made that law that said, hey, they got to pass through uh, that white oak barrel for the first Well, time. I was going to ask you all, I mean, things like scotch don't have that requirement. So is there a taste difference and a quality difference in terms of using a charred barrel once versus more than once? Or is that, do we know? Yeah, there is. There's actually a huge difference. In fact, most of the bourbon barrels that get used once, since they're, a lot of stuff's owned by big six corporations here in Kentucky, well, they also have scotches in their portfolio. So they will either put those barrels on container ships and ship them over to Scotland, or they'll put them down to Mexico to go age tequila. The other thing is what they'll do is to save space is they will break the barrels down so they can put all the staves together in a container ship, ship them over to another cooperage in Scotland and rebuild the barrel that they can use for scotch. They do get a second life. Yeah. Got it. Well, I mean, if we want to talk oak, I'll just say from a conservation perspective, it's really hard to find a species that is more socially, economically and environmentally important. I mean, it of course, we love bourbon and we want, you know, we want oak barrels for bourbon. But I mean, oak covers 104 million acres of public and private forest land in the eastern and central U.S. And I mean, it's one of those forest species that's just really important for plant and animal biodiversity, especially because it produces acorns. So that's great for, you know, deer and turkey. It's great for a lot. It provides a really good food for wildlife. It also generates billions of dollars annually. I mean, we all know it's furniture, it's flooring, it's cabinets, it's everything like that. So it's just a critically important species for so many reasons to this country. With your foundation, this and that, and like, what is the current status of the white oak species in that Appalachian region that you all are concerned with and in Kentucky? And like, has there been a negative or positive impact with the bourbon industry and the way they've uh, approached it? What's the current state, I guess? So what's the problem with white oak, right? That's the question. So we really have an age structure problem right now with oak. 75% of white oak are mature in our forest. I mean, the good news about this is that we don't have a supply problem with white oak right this second. 
But looking into the future, we don't have seedlings and saplings that are in the midstory or that are coming up in the understory. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. The main reason is management. So in our forest, we'll just use Kentucky as an example, but this is pretty widespread. In our forest, the what we call business as usual or what happens when a forest is harvested is usually re- related to a life event by the landowner. So a landowner has, on average in Kentucky, hundred couple hundred acres. Like these are not huge owners. Like a lot of forests are family owned. They have a kid that needs to go to college. They have a health issue. They want to retire. Someone knocks on their door and says, hey, we'll give you a hundred grand to harvest your woods. And they say, that sounds awesome. So what happens is that there's generally not a forest management plan. So what occurs is something that we call high grading. So the logger comes in and harvests all the oak trees and all the high value trees like walnuts and other trees. And they leave everything else. So maples, beaches, things like that. So if you can imagine, if you're not taking out that lower value wood, over time, the forest transitions from having an oak component in the overstory that can drop seedlings and to having no oak component in the overstory. And then what you also do is you don't create um, open light conditions because you're leaving all of those other trees there. So you don't have regeneration of oak. So over time, we're seeing a, a transition from high grading to forests that have an oak component to forests that, that really don't. And there's other things contributing to oak declines as well. I mean, there's to your point, Ryan, and you know, diseases, invasive species, insect pathogens, things like that. Um, one other thing I'll mention is that oak love disturbance. So fire is a phenomenal tool to restore oak. Unfortunately, Smokey the Bear got it a little wrong in terms of the only <laughs> the only good fire is a dead fire. And um, the U.S. Forest Service and others are, I mean, everyone has tried and is currently trying so hard to rewrite that narrative because prescribed or controlled fire that is carefully planned and orchestrated is just a phenomenal restoration tool that is great for oak. Fire suppression has certainly contributed to oak declines. But the main issue is that we have we still have pole and saw logs in our oak forest. And I think the projections are over the next 10 to 20 years is when we're really going to see some problems because we don't have those younger trees coming up behind them. I guess you're saying fire is a better prescribed method to to get new oak saplings. But if you have existing oak trees, there's not sunlight to get new ones regenerating, I guess. So I guess how's that disturbance versus fire? I guess why does the fire work better than removing oak trees and letting them regenerate when the canopy is now open, I guess? Or do the other trees just become so competitive because they're mature, they crowd it out? Yeah, no, this is a great question. So prescribed fire only helps if there are seedling and, and smaller oaks in the understory. So it'll kill the maples and things like that and allow you know, a forest stand that might already have an oak component to get those trees to be kind of in the midstory and start growing. If you have a forest where back to the high grading, let's imagine you have an oak forest with a lot of good barrel logs. Those are all removed and now you have no oak in the overstory. Fire won't help you there if there's no oak in the understory either. So basically a larger disturbance, like a mid-story removal or some sort of management there would be better than fire. But um, if there are oak in the overstory, so like if you had a forest management plan and some of the oaks were left versus all of them taken out and then there were canopy gaps, that would be a really good thing. That would probably result in some regeneration. Is that some of the plans, you know, that Cooperages and distilleries talk about, you know, that managing these forests properly is that the proper i guess prescription or how can they or can they manage them properly through you know removal and without doing fire i guess with removal and leaving gaps and whatnot what is the proper prescription i guess like everything in biology and science, it depends. So it depends on your your forest stand what the proper prescription is. If you have a great sapling representation of oaks, maybe fire and a mid-story removal would be best. If you have no oaks in your forest stand at all, 
probably one of the best things you could do is tap into a low value market and get rid of some of those maples and lower value wood you know, species so that you have these canopy gaps and then maybe you can replant oaks. One of the things that we're doing at the Nature Conservancy is using the opportunity of reclaimed mine lands with our partners to plant really high quality oak forests that are really diverse that, again, it'll take 30 plus years, but eventually those will be great for us. But I will say there's a lot of people thinking about this oak issue. You know, the White Oak Initiative is a diverse coalition of partners. It includes the bourbon industry. It includes conservation players. I'll be honest, no one has solved the problem of how to scale how to scale forest management to solve the oak regeneration and oak representation issue in terms of those younger age classes. We've done a lot of thinking about it at the Nature Conservancy, and we have a couple solutions that we think would help scale. I'd love to share those if if you want to hear them now. Oh, yeah. Let's do it. Absolutely. All right. So the first solution is workforce development, which is sort of a stopgap with our Inflation Reduction Act and other federal legislation. There's a lot of workforce development funding. And so we think engaging that to do management, Ryan, to your point, depend it has to be dependent on the what is needed, but at a large scale could put people in jobs and also really help with long-term oak regeneration. So looking at a forest stand and coming in, not having the landowner pay for it and actually doing mid-story removal practices or things like that, fire that could long-term really help us. So that's a solution that's a little different than our market-based solutions. Anything to be really successful it has to have a scaling mechanism that probably doesn't require constant federal dollars. Um, that's a better long-term solution. So a um, couple different market things that would be great. First, sustainable forestry markets. So for example, for a stewardship council, you've probably seen that little FSC stamp on napkins. And that means FSC guarantees that a forest is managed in a way that takes into consideration economic and environmental factors. So side note, when a landowner has his for his or her forest high graded, that's actually reducing the long-term economic value of that forest for that landowner's kids because you're not going to have a white oak or a oak component if you high grade it and then it'll be less valuable down the line because there's none regenerating. Right now, unfortunately, If you go through the process of Forest Stewardship Council certification, and that's just one example, there's, you know, American Tree Farm certification, all kinds of different ways you could go with this. Basically, there's no cost premium in Kentucky if you're FSC certified. Sometimes you get access to markets. The stave market could be a great example of this. The first thing we need to do is stop the problem from getting worse. And as long as we are for the most part, having high grading be our predominant forest management practice for harvest, the problem will get worse, not better. So if we could somehow find a way to incentivize or bridge the gap for sustainable forestry markets and a new normal be that there is a cost premium. I mean, why are people going to engage in a market if there's no cost premium and it costs them money? So that's one way that I think we could definitely stop the problem from getting worse and then in the future have the forests be more sustainable and have a higher oak component. First off, I guess I need to start checking my napkins every time I put one in my face, see if it has an FC on it. Uh, You've mentioned the term high grading a few times. Can you explain what that really means? Yeah. So high grading is generally done when there's no forest management plan. It's when you come into a forested tract and you harvest every single economically valuable log, usually oak, walnut, hickory, things like that. But you don't harvest that lower grade other species like maples and beaches and things that are not economically valuable and not the greatest wildlife trees either. So if you take out all of those high-grade, economically viable 
logs, you're left with a forest that's going to transition out of having an oak component. And what that does, that's the like you're maximizing net present value of that forest at that moment. You're getting the most money out of it as possible. For example, if you had a management plan, you might leave seed trees. You might leave the best, biggest oaks in there to, um, you know, have have seedlings come off of them. Or you might do what's called a diameter limited harvest, meaning cut down every single tree over 16 inches in diameter, including those low grade trees so that you're giving everything the same opportunity to come back versus favoring those low value trees. Do you think there could be like a tax incentive or tax breaks removing like the like you said the maples and beeches and sycamore or whatever you're you know species you're nailing it okay here is another crazy complicated that's what really gets people moving the reason that those low value trees are proliferating in the landscape is because we have a huge issue with low value wood markets in appalachia There are very few low-value wood markets, and the ones we have are going out of business. So think paper, pulp, wood chips, things like that. So because there's no markets, even if there is an incentive, there's nowhere to take that wood. So it's not a commercially viable harvest to get it off the landscape. One of the most important things we could probably do for our forest health is to incentivize low value markets. But that's a big lift. There's a lot of new technology like nanocellulose and things like that that are cross-laminated timbers that people are talking about. We actually had a team of scientists look at areas in Appalachia that have mapping all of the sawmills, so all the normal sawmills and then all the low value markets. And then we used forest service data to look at, I'll just call it forest health, but really kind of oak component and other factors. And just having low value markets in a procurement area means the forest is healthier because there's an incentive and a way to get other species off the landscape versus just taking the oaks, taking the oaks, taking the oaks, leaving everything else over and over again until the oaks are no longer really represented. I'm just thinking with the emerald ash borer, people may or may not know there's a huge ash population that has been devastated by this borer. How has that impacted or has it any impact? Because I know ash was the preferred wood for bats, but now I know maple is starting to be the preferred wood because the ash population was taken down and whatnot. So... That's where my head is going. It's like, what has happened as a result of that borer? Yeah. Well, I mean, I know in a lot of urban areas is where that ash decline really hit home because there's a lot of ash component in urban neighborhoods and things like that. Ash component in a lot of our forests wasn't dominant. So in terms of the overall kind of impact on oaks, I don't really know for sure. I will say... In our forest in Appalachia, a healthy forest, there's a lot of snags and dead trees that are great for bats and other wildlife. Like the bats don't care what species it is necessarily as long as there's, you know, availability of snags and, and cavities and things like that. But it's it's fascinating to think, I mean, as we all know, like these Appalachian forests used to have American chestnuts as the dominant tree that, again, that's a masting tree that was so important economically and for wildlife. With the chestnut blight, the oaks and hickory sort of took over as being the dominant tree. And so, you know, we don't know. It's hard to figure out ecologically what a decline in one species does to another. I think we'll know in another probably 20, 30 years for sure. Yeah, when we're no longer relevant. (laughs) Uh, Exactly. (laughs) One other market solution that I wanted to share with you all, and these are all just things that are on the front end of discussion, because like I said, I don't think anyone's figured out how to scale management to really address this white oak issue. We've all heard of forest carbon markets. At the Nature Conservancy, we think if we can identify, we're calling them climate smart forestry or white oak practices, if we can identify the management that's needed to restore white oak and make a link to long-term carbon benefit, which we don't know if that link is real or not. So for example, if you did a mid-story removal and prescribed fire to benefit white oak and a planting, does that have a net carbon benefit because trees sequester a great deal of carbon? If it does, 
we could develop a protocol or partner with other entities to develop a protocol. And then the landowner could get paid to implement those practices. So it would tie into a larger forest carbon market, which would be really, really cool. So, I mean, the sustainable forest markets and the forest carbon markets, if we can link into those, I think we have a good chance of getting management at scale. Because again, it's not commercially viable what we need to do. So we have to find ways to creatively get the money to do it. One of the things that has kind of stirred up a lot of this conversation, it seems like every year there's an article that comes out that re-energizes or rejuvenates the discussion. I remember back in 2022, there was a vine pair article. And then this past year it was Bloomberg. I think it was in May of this past year that said the bourbon shortage or like there's going to be a huge shortage uh, of impending American white oak that could ruin the bourbon industry. And everything that you've talked about is is kind of showing that it's because there is none of that undergrowth or those saplings or those small trees that are starting to come out. You had mentioned kind of earlier is that 70% of the forests are mature. What does mature actually mean? Is it like an age range? Is it a size? That sort of thing. Yeah. So I'm not super familiar with what a bourbon barrel log has to be in terms of diameter at breast height, but pretty big. I mean, they're probably older than 50, 75 year old oaks, maybe even older. Yeah, I've, I've heard 70 is kind of the average. And so it's it's crazy to think about this, like the stuff that you're doing now, you'll never see like that tree become a, a bourbon barrel by the time we're gone. Yeah, that's right. But when I say mature, I mean, a tree that's in the overstory. So a tree that's not a sapling or beneath the other trees, like a dominant tree in the forest that's probably greater than 30, 40 years old. Those are the trees that we think of as kind of the mature component. As you kind of mentioned, the the management's the, the hardest thing. Right. There's probably nothing that's stopping the current path of, of where we're going. What do you see is like, could there be the ice age of forestry where it's all of a sudden like it's just coming and nobody's stopping it? Are we looking at like 10, 15 years that we're like, this is like, if we don't change something, this is the the time bomb we're going to run into? So the projections around when this problem with white oak will hit the bourbon industry, I mean, I've seen 10 to 20 years. So basically there's a 10 to 20 year runway of these mature trees, right? And then once they're harvested, there seems to be this gap because of all the reasons we've talked about with management and everything else. The good news is that we don't have a problem today. And there are a lot of really smart, driven people from industry to conservation, scientists trying to figure out how to address this problem. So like the Oak Ice Age, we see it coming and everyone is trying really hard to get in front of it before we run out of bourbon because that would be catastrophic. Again, we're just on the front end of scalable solutions. We have a lot of science about why we have a problem. We have a lot of science about how to restore oak. So we know we have a problem. We know how to fix the problem. We just don't have the money or the mechanisms to scale the solutions, which we might now have solutions from the White Oak Initiative or other key players. We have a lot of things we could pilot. So Really, doesn't everything come down to people, politics, and money? <laughs> and, and that's what I was kind of curious about that last one. Is that what a lot of the members of the bourbon industry are doing? It's saying, like, let's throw money at this and kind of see what can happen. I think the bourbon industry has, they have sustainability goals. I don't know if you all have taken a look at a lot of their sustainability platforms that are really ambitious. And they span broader issues than just oak. It's it's water, it's greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah, a lot um, of carbon neutral. Yeah, exactly. To. And to be honest, I'm not, I think the bourbon industry is still trying to figure out this very thing we're talking about. How do we meaningfully solve this problem? Unfortunately, like a lot of problems in conservation, there's no silver bullet. I mean, there's no, oak takes so long to grow that there's not an answer that's, you know, oh, great, we've solved that problem. We'll implement that right now. I mean, it's a longer term forest management challenge that the sooner everyone gets on the bandwagon together to figure out how to fund it and move it forward, the better. We've actually pitched this forest carbon market, climate smart oak forestry. We've actually pitched it, but have not had any takers yet. Well, hopefully somebody's listening. 
That would be awesome. <laughs> but again, I mean, let something else do the work for you. You cannot pour enough money into this problem to manage our forest. You have to find a market-based solution, I think. From this conversation, you were talking about the high grading and loggers being a huge issue. But is the bourbon industry an issue? Because they would say that they're not, that they're properly managing forest and whatnot. So is it, are they just like a small piece of the problem or are they not even a problem or is just the loggers the biggest problem? What you said, Ryan, is before we've, we've had guests on the show and they're like, well, it's not the bourbon industry. It's the construction industry. It's housing. It's flooring. And those are the ones that are the problem. It's not us. So where do you where do you see that kind of pushing blame? Yeah, well, OK, if we're going to play the blame game, I first want to say I don't blame the loggers. The loggers are operating in an environment that they need to make a living. The markets, which are the people, which is us, which is everyone, the markets are not demanding certified wood. So the high grading, I would hazard to say the loggers and the landowners probably don't realize what they're doing to their forest a lot of the time. They're not consciously trying to high grade the forest. They're just making money and feeding their family. So I think I, I'm going to blame the whole system writ large. Definitely not the loggers. In terms of the bourbon industry, I think it depends. If you ask the question of bourbon industry players, are your stave suppliers FSC or Tree Farm, Forest Stewardship Council, American Tree Farm, Sustainable Forestry Initiative, do you utilize a certification mechanism for your stave facilities? If the answer is no, they're likely contributing to the problem because they're using high-graded oak, which is going to create more problems down the road for oak regeneration. I'm going to check their napkin. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Go there. Look for the certification on the wall next time we take a tour. Yeah, but, but okay. So what's the role of the consumer as well? We're all drinking bourbon. I mean, it's hard to put blame anywhere. I think the whole, again, back to our non-confrontational solutions-oriented approach, we as consumers need to make it really clear that bourbon is a luxury commodity. If there was a 10 cent bourbon tax that went to incentivize FSC certification and went back to those loggers, I would pay it. I'll probably pay more than that. I mean, does the bourbon drinker care about price increases that go to help sustainability? I'm going to say they don't. And I don't know that that message is actually, for some reason, it seems like the bourbon industry may or may not agree with me. And they may be right. But do you all think a bourbon consumer would pay a little bit more to understand that the forests are being managed and how closely tied is the bourbon drinker to having an environmental ethic is my question. I would like to see it be taken out of the taxes that are going to our government based on everything because there's what 50 to 70 percent of the cost of a bottle actually goes to taxes. At the end of the day, this is a is a land and resource and a lot of it's all government controlled. So it should go into that that bucket as well. Instead of Nelson County building five schools in four years, they should have took some of that money and get, put it back into the conservation Instead of wasting, you know, spending money unnecessarily on things, I, I think, yes, the tax money that is being taxed on the Berman industry could be used, allocated better, I guess. Well, yeah. And you could make an incredible argument that taking some of that tax and investing it to ensure our forests are economically viable long term is an incredible investment into Kentucky. So, I mean, just some stats in 2022. Forestry was over a $9 billion industry in the state and over 49,000 jobs. And that's just the $9 billion is just direct impacts. So what's happening is really a long-term challenge. So why not redirect some of that funding to solve it for especially the communities in eastern Kentucky that are in economic transition right now? We talked about the bourbon industry being a part of the White Oak Initiative are there other industries that take part of this? I know because as consumers, as you mentioned, it's a luxury good. We look at it and we're like, yes, of course, we want to help. But does the construction industry, does any other people that utilize and harvest white oak, are they looking at this and looking at the 10 to 20 year roadmap as well? Honestly, they might be. I'm not aware offhand of any major players. And I think the reason for that is that Kentucky and bourbon, it's such a 
vertically integrated industry for Kentucky, if that makes sense. I mean, it's their supply chains are local to here. I think that bourbon as an industry writ large is more confined in terms of the location, whereas things like construction or other things are more spread out across the nation. And so maybe I wouldn't know that they were involved, but it does feel like the bourbon industry is being a leader in elevating this issue in Kentucky. Dana, this has been a fantastic conversation. I think you've enlightened a lot of the problems as well as looking at some of the solutions and getting to understand exactly what the impact is of, of the bourbon industry. And the whole time I'm looking at these articles and it's like every year there's always one that comes out of like bourbon's going to die in 10 years because there's going to be no oak. But it always comes out and read just like I said, it reinvigorates the conversation. But this is the first time we've had a, a true expert to come on and give us kind of the lowdown on, on what that does mean. So I do want to say thank you for coming on the show. Oh, it's love been this. great. We'll have to do a part two. We didn't even cover agriculture. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, we, we'll have to do a no, part this two this has on been that, great. So. Thanks for having me. And I mean, I'll just close by saying we are on the front end of this issue. We can definitely make an impact on the trajectory of our forests and the oak within them. The best time to start was 30 years ago. The second best time is right now. So, yeah, I, I'm optimistic that the great minds working on this and bourbon industry and conservation players can figure it out. Love it. So if people want to know more about everything that you're doing at the Nature Conservator or Nature Conservancy, the White Oak Initiative, or if you just want to put your Instagram handle out there, whatever it is, feel free to plug it. Yeah, absolutely. So you can just Google the Nature Conservancy or the Nature Conservancy Kentucky to find out more about us. And then the White Oak Initiative has a fantastic website and also a conservation plan that they've published. Most of the bourbon industry's sustainability initiatives are available in PDF form for various companies. So take a look at those, too. It's um, it's impressive what they're aiming to do. So, yeah. Perfect. Well, we don't have any PDFs for anybody to download, but you can always go and check out every episode that we've ever done at bourbonpursuit.com. You can also so follow us on all social media channels, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, wherever it is. And if you like the show, share it with a friend, share it with not Smokey the Bear because apparently he didn't know how to manage forest fires. He's making amends. He's making amends. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, Dana, thank you again for coming on the show. And with that, cheers, everybody. We'll see you next time. Doodles. Doodles.